Well, I'd like to invite you now to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, we took a break uh, from our study uh, in 1 Corinthians last week, but we get back to uh, the final chapter of 1, Corinthians, or of, of 1 Corinthians. It's been about a year uh, since we've been in this book, and uh, so uh, we are drawing near to the end. But I'd only like to read, uh, just consider the first four verses of chapter 16 today. So let us once again give ear to the reading of God's word. 1 Corinthians chapter 16 beginning in verse 1. Now, concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up, as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, They will accompany me. When the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let's ask his blessing upon it now. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you once again for your word. We thank you for the fact that it is living and active. And so we pray that as your word is proclaimed today, that you would grant to us faith to believe all that is promised to us in the gospel, as well as hearts of gratitude for all that Christ has done. And we ask all of this in his name. Amen. Well, love and Lord, let me ask you, when you watch a movie, are you like me, that when the movie's over, you get up and leave the theater, or are you like my sons who like to sit and watch the credits go until the very end? Well, movie makers have been getting smart recently, and in order to get people to watch those credits, they insert hidden scenes, I guess they call them uh, Easter eggs, hidden scenes in the credits that if you sit there and watch through the whole thing you get to find out some pretty cool stuff. Well, for all intents and purposes, the book of 1 Corinthians is over. Paul has addressed all of the major doctrinal and pastoral issues that were going on at Corinth at the time, at least the important ones. He said, when I get there, I'll fill fill you in on more things. But really, chapter 16 is the closing of the letter. It's the credits, if you will, where he tells them his travel plans and sends greetings, And as we see in our passage today, he gives instructions about this offering that he would collect uh, for the saints in Jerusalem. But if we think that the letter, that we could just close the book and say that we're done with our study, we would be mistaken. In fact, if we treat this just as we do movie credits, we would be missing quite a bit. There's much that we can learn in this passage as we continue to study it in the coming weeks, but in particular... What I want to consider is this offering that the Apostle Paul just gives in in a few short verses. He gives instructions about. This offering, as he says, is for the poor who are in the church in Jerusalem. You see, the the church in Jerusalem at this time were under a major financial distress. And this was due, uh, no doubt, according to, uh, due to many factors. But one of the major factors was the persecution that the church in Jerusalem had faced. We know that when Jesus, even when Jesus was doing his earthly ministry, that the Sanhedrin had determined that if anyone confessed Jesus to be the Christ, that he would be kicked out of the synagogue. We read that in John chapter 9. And being kicked out of the synagogue wasn't just like being excluded from 
your church services, but it would mean that people would completely shun you. You would be disowned by your family. You would be cut off from from any inheritance. People wouldn't do business with you. And so it was a major financial uh, um, sacrifice if you were to confess Jesus to be the Christ and that resulted in you being kicked out of the synagogue. And so there was the, the persecution that the Jews in Jerusalem faced. And then on top of that, they suffered a major famine. This was the famine that the prophet Agabus had predicted in the book of Acts. And it hit Jerusalem very hard. And so uh, if you read, for example, the book of James, a letter written by James, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, to predominantly Jewish congregation, you see that they, were, they had the majority of the congregation were suffering financially. And so the Apostle Paul felt like it was very fitting and very important for him to be able to raise an offering from among the predominantly Gentile churches that he had planted throughout Asia and Macedonia and into Greece. And he and this offering was very important to him. He mentions it several times in his letters. And he saw that it was a very fitting thing for the Gentiles to do for their Jewish brothers and sisters from whom, according to the flesh, the Messiah came. He writes about this offering uh, after it had been collected a few years after penning 1 Corinthians in Romans chapter 15. He tells the Romans, at present, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem, for they were pleased to do it. And indeed, they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. And so here we see the Apostle Paul explaining his rationale for why it is so fitting for Gentiles who benefited from the Jews, who received the law, from whom, according to the flesh, the Messiah came, that they in turn ought to share uh, uh, physical blessings, uh, material blessings in return. And we see how fitting this is, how this fits in in the context of 1 Corinthians when Paul, Paul's concern for the physical well-being of the saints accords with what he just said about the bodily resurrection in chapter 15. You see, God created us body and soul. He's concerned not only for our spiritual well-being, but also for our physical well-being. Indeed, this is part and parcel of our Christian faith, that we ought to contribute to the needs of the poor and ensure that our brothers and sisters are taken care of. James tells us in James chapter 1, religion that is pure and undefiled before God is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. John writes in 1 John chapter 3, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? And finally, in Galatians 6, Paul writes, so then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. And so we see God wanting to make sure that the physical well-being of the saints are taken care of. And in in order to accomplish that, he calls upon those of us who have means to contribute to the needs of the saints. And that is part and parcel of our Christian life. 
And so Paul must have mentioned this offering to the Corinthians, perhaps even when he was there for the 18 months in Corinth. Uh, and so he must have mentioned this to them. And so the Corinthians were curious, uh, uh, wondering about the logistics of this offering. And perhaps even in their letter that they had written to him previously, they probably asked about the logistics of this offering. And that's why Paul here now addresses it when he says, now concerning the collection for the saint, and he gives specific instructions. But it's the specificity of his instructions that stand out at first when we see there in verse 2 that he says, on the first day of every week, you need to set aside money. It's interesting that Paul singles out a particular day of the week for the saints to set aside money for this collection that he would come and get later. Why is it? that he's so specific about the particular day. Why the first day? Why not the second day? Why not the third day? Why not the seventh day of the week, the day which the Lord blessed and rested on in creation and commanded the Jews in the Old Testament to rest on the Sabbath day? Why is it that he says we ought to do this on the first day of the week? I think we get a clue in Acts chapter 20 where Luke tells us that it was the custom of the church in Troas, which is uh, located in modern-day northern Turkey, that it was the custom of the church in Troas to gather together on the first day of the week in order to break bread, a clear allusion to the Lord's Supper, as well as to hear the word of God preached. And there you may recall in Acts chapter 20, it was the Apostle Paul who was delivering the sermon. And Paul actually was a bit long-winded in his sermon, and it went well past midnight. And, and uh, you, those of you who know the story know that there was a young man in the room who was getting drowsy. It happens to the best of us. We put them all to sleep. He was getting drowsy, and he fell asleep and fell out the window and died. And yet the Apostle Paul was able to bring him back to life. And so here we have this amazing story in Acts 20. But what's often, and we often focus on the resurrection that takes place there. But what's important for our purposes is the fact that it was on the first day of the week that they met to, to have the Lord's Supper and to hear the word of God proclaimed. But the fact that Paul had given instructions not only to the Corinthians, but also to the Galatians, suggests that this practice of gathering together on the first day of the week in order to hear the word of God proclaimed and to partake of the Lord's Supper was a near universal practice in the ancient church. They did it in Troas, they did it in Galatia, presumably they did it in, in, in Corinth. And in what we find in all of the New Testament evidence And then even moving beyond the New Testament into the early church fathers, those men who lived in the first, second, third, and fourth century, all of them are unified in that the church met on the first day of the week. Well, why is that the case? The only other occurrence of this phrase, the first day of the week, obviously appears in the resurrection narratives where it speaks of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew, Luke, uh, John, Mark, they all tell us that Jesus rose on the first day of the week. And he appeared to his disciples on that very day in order to break bread with them. 
We read that in Luke chapter 24. And what's even interesting is that we know that Thomas, doubting Thomas as he would be known, Thomas wasn't there on that first Sunday to, to see the Lord. And he says, unless I see him, unless I handle him and touch him with my own hands, I won't believe that he's raised from the dead. And we know that Jesus appeared to them again in order to prove to Thomas, do you know when that was? It was the very next week on the first day of the week. Obviously, the Lord is setting an example for his early church to gather together on the first day of the week to do what? Well, to celebrate the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. This first day of the week is what John would later call the Lord's Day in Revelation chapter 1, when he was in the spirit, presumably in corporate worship on the Isle of Patmos. And so we don't need a new, we don't need an explicit command in the New Testament, a, a verse that says, you shall now gather on the first day of the week. No, we, through good and necessary consequence, and from the example of the apostles and the early church and the, and the history of the church all the way up to the present day, we see that it is fitting to gather on the first day of the week rather than the last day, but the first day of the week in order to celebrate the new creation, in order to celebrate the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, in order to celebrate the new and better covenant that he created and instituted with us. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Now, some people might object, well, wait a minute. The apostle Paul tells them to do this on the first day of the week, but he doesn't say anything about corporate worship. And even when he talks about the, the collection, so the setting aside money, it seems to indicate that they're supposed to do this individually at their own, in their own homes. And so some people would say, well, this has nothing to do with corporate worship. And only when the Apostle Paul comes does he say, should those uh, collections be combined and put in the common coffer so that they could send the money off to Jerusalem. But keep in mind that this offering, this specific offering that the Apostle Paul is, is addressing, is above and beyond the ones that they would give to the needs of the local churches there in Corinth. And presumably, they would have given to the needs of the local church as well as they gathered together for corporate worship. But how fitting would it be for them on the day where they heard the word of God preached, which we read about in chapter 14, and partook of the Lord's Supper, which we read about in chapter 11, and exercised their spiritual gifts, which we read about in chapter 12, how fitting would it be on that very day would, they, would it be for them also to set aside something for the saints in Jerusalem, expressing not only that they are a local manifestation of the body of Christ, each being the arms and hands and feet of the Lord Jesus, but also expressing the fact that we are the church universal part of the body of Christ, one hand taking care of one part of the body taking care of another part. But we also see that the Apostle Paul's instructions were practical as well, not only theologically fitting, but also practical when he explains that they should set aside this money each, each week on the first day of the week, so that there will be no collection when I come. You see, Paul didn't want a spur-of-the-moment, off-the-cuff offering where people just scrape together whatever they have at the moment and that the Apostle Paul needs to beg and plead and cajole 
uh, in order to gain a substantial offering for Jerusalem. No, Paul desired a well-planned giving strategy where they'd be able to save up money over the course of time so that the gift would be sizable. And it's interesting is if you go on and read 2 Corinthians, apparently the church in Corinth didn't really take Paul's instructions too seriously because Paul felt it necessary to address this collection again in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And he uses the churches in Macedonia as an example to spur on the church in Corinth to follow through with their commitment. Notice what he says in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. He says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. Hint, hint, nudge, nudge. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, And in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine. For for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich." You see, the Apostle Paul commends the Corinthians for for their initial desire to support the needs of the saints in Jerusalem, but now he exhorts them to follow through with that commitment. Using the churches in Macedonia as an example, but ultimately their motivation shouldn't be guilt, but it should be gratitude. Because he reminds them of what the Lord Jesus Christ did, that although he was rich, he became poor so that through his poverty, we might become rich. So following the example of our Lord, out of gratitude for what he has done for us, we freely give out of the grace that he has given. And we see that principle of of giving being, being part of the Christian life. As Paul goes on in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 to say, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. You see, the Apostle Paul's not being like those, uh, those telemarketers, the swindlers who say, you send in money and God's going to uh, increase your giving tenfold, uh, as if it's uh, promising you know, financial return, which is precisely not our motivation as Christians, 
Jesus says, give and don't expect anything in return. No, the Apostle Paul isn't touting some sort of pyramid scheme. He's showing us how we ought to live lives uh, in light of the fact that God has freely bestowed his grace upon us in Christ Jesus. And so our motivation shouldn't be greed. It should be gratitude. And nowhere in the new covenant are we promised health, wealth, and prosperity. Nowhere in the new covenant are we promised that if we give X amount, we will get a certain amount in return. The only thing that the Apostle Paul is promising here is God will give you grace so that you'll be content with what you have so that you can go on and do more good works. That's what we're promised as as new covenant believers, contentment with what we have. So it's gratitude, not greed, that motivates giving in the Christian life. But each person should give, as Paul says, not under compulsion. Each person should give cheerfully, but each person should give according to his or her means as the Lord has blessed them. That's what he says in our passage today, as he may prosper. You see, contrary to popular belief, there is no New Testament tithe. Nowhere in the New Testament are we uh, commanded to give 10%. That was part of the ceremonial law. No, in the new covenant, we are commanded to give out of the abundance that God has given us, uh, regardless of the percentage. And so that's what the apostle Paul says, according to your means. As God has prospered you, set aside the amount of money that you think is fitting. Now, 10% is a great amount. As a matter of fact, if everyone gave 10%, the church's coffers would be full. We would have more money than we know what to do with. But you see, you may be sitting here thinking, well, my 10% or my, the amount of money that I give is nothing compared to what someone else can give. And so I don't have that much to donate to the needs of the church. But you see, God's accounting is different than ours. We all know the story of the widow's might in Mark chapter 12, Jesus sitting in the temple and, and watching uh, people give donations. And this was a big show where the rich people would come and they would give their donations to the temple and let everyone be impressed with how much money they put into the coffers. And yet a, a, a poor widow came and she put in two small copper coins, which, which Mark tells us equal a penny. And Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. Now, I'm not a math major, but I know (laughs) that one penny isn't much money. So how can Jesus say she gave more than what the rich people were giving? Well, he explains. He says, for they contribute out of their abundance But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. And so these are uh, uh, striking words to hear from our Lord Jesus Christ, that God's accounting is different. That if you give out of not only your abundance, but even out of your poverty, he counts that as giving more, and your reward is even greater in heaven. And so that's why the Apostle Paul, that's why it's fitting for the Apostle Paul to call this, this donation, not a tax, not a tithe, but a gift. In verse 3, this is the same Greek word that is translated grace. You see, grace is something that is freely given. And that, in turn, is what the Corinthians are doing. Out of, out of the abundance of God's grace, 
we are able to share with others as an act of spiritual worship to bring glory to God. But we also see in Paul's instructions prudent financial responsibility. Notice what he says there in verse 3 as he says, When I arrive, I will send those whom you will credit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. You see, the Apostle Paul didn't say, just give me your money and I'll take it and you can trust me. No, he, he re- references particular people that the church itself would approve and who would be accredited by letter to carry this donation. We see that the local church has a say in who handles their donation. This isn't often the case in, in many churches today. People give the money and they have no idea how the money is being sent. They have no idea are being spent or who's handling the money. No, the Apostle Paul is taking prudent financial responsibility, saying you set aside trustworthy people who can take this donation. And what's interesting is that Paul isn't even counting on going with them. As important as this offering was to him, we see here uh, that that, uh, he isn't even planning on taking the money but he leaves it open to the possibility of accompanying the delegation to take the money to Jerusalem. Uh, There would have been a a security issue as well. Traveling in the ancient world was very dangerous, especially traveling with money. Uh, And so there is safety in numbers. And so the Apostle Paul at least floats the possibility of them going with him to Jerusalem, perhaps even to ensure that they uh, safely make it. But what's interesting is that he is not insisting on going, but leaving it up to the church to determine that. Well, as it turns out, the Apostle Paul would end up uh, accompanying this delegation to take the money to Jerusalem. But what ultimately compelled him to go, despite all the dangers, despite the fact that he was even being told by the Holy Spirit that if he went to Jerusalem, he would be arrested, He he nevertheless was compelled by the Spirit to go because of his desire to see this offering being carried out and to see this tangible expression of love that the Gentile churches would have for the predominantly Jewish churches in Jerusalem. He wanted to see church unity. He wanted to see this uh, expression of love uh, being carried out. As we uh, conclude... Uh, these uh, four short verses about instructions about this, uh, this offering. We see that our passage shows a tangible expression of love and care that one segment of the church has for another. We're reminded of the fact that God is concerned not only for our spiritual well-being, but also for our physical well-being. And he commands us as his people to ensure that those needs are met, especially for those of the household of faith. And so giving for the Christian is not an afterthought. It should be part and parcel of our Christian life, for indeed it is our part of our spiritual worship. It's not something we should do carelessly or begrudgingly. It's not just we throw money in the basket to keep the lights on. No, we do this out of gratitude for what God has done for us in Christ as a form of worship. Which is why, by the way, we do it during our worship service. If we just needed money from you, we could put a box in the back. We could, uh, you know, uh, send a letter uh, uh, throughout the week. No, we do this on the first day of the week in corporate worship as a as a 
form of worship to our God. And, but we also see that it should be well thought out and planned, and steps ought to be taken to ensure financial accountability. But ultimately, we, we shouldn't lose sight of, our, of the motivation. Ultimately, we give, whether it's our time, our talent, or our treasures. Ultimately, we sacrifice, lay those things down as a living sacrifice because God first gave to us. May God grant to us hearts filled, filled with gratitude for all that he has done. Amen? Let's give thanks. Dear Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for the fact that although you were rich, you became poor so that we, through your poverty, might become rich, so that we might share in life everlasting. And we thank you, O Lord, for all of the graces that you have bestowed upon us, both spiritual as well as material. And we pray that you would continue to fill our hearts not only with contentment, but also with gratitude for all that you have done. And we ask this in your name. Amen.